Song number 218, we each have marked, as Brother Jeff has asked us, what a joyful opportunity we've each been granted this morning, as was mentioned earlier by Brother Gary in the announcements, to look out over the audience and appreciate that things are well with each and every one of us, that God has blessed us with such a beautiful day weather-wise, and now the opportunity to engage in a worship and adoration of His matchless and marvelous name. I continue to be so thankful for men like Brother Harold who preached the lesson last Lord's Day morning. As thankful as we are of the opportunity to come together, we have such talented men here who can so ably and capably fill this pulpit and share, most importantly, not stories, not fables, not tales, but rather the truth which God has revealed, that we each might be drawn nearer and closer to the message that God has revealed to us and so appreciative for the lesson that Brother Harold brought. As we come together today, you'll notice on the wall to my left a lesson entitled, One Thing, O-N-E-T-H-I-N-G, One Thing. Over the next few moments this morning, let me invite you to engage with me in a consideration of the 27th Psalm. We'll not look at the fullness of it in terms of all of its verses, but rather we'll be selective as we look beginning at verse 1 at a few of the opening verses in the 27th Psalm. By way of introduction this morning, here are some thoughts that will prompt us to consider some of those matters in that psalm. It is still a fascinating matter, isn't it? And yet it is one that encourages us to know the absolute nature of the Word of God that we've been given. The sacred scriptures have for us words of encouragement and, yea, words of instruction that touch every single emotion every single issue, every single problem that you and I might ever be called upon to face. That alone makes this book a genuine set of treasures that have been given. It merely is left to you and me to mine those treasures and apply that truth in our life so that we will have the knowledge and the character to face every single issue in life. It may well be because of that we encounter passages such as Psalm 119 verse number 9 in which we're even there reminded that it is the Scriptures by which we can hide in our heart and thus not sin against thee. You'll notice some of the additional thoughts of that verse, that particular slide, remind us about David. I realize that on Sunday evenings for quite some time, we have been looking at the book of 1 Samuel because that has been the book of the Bible Bowl study. But in that we've been introduced to David and in his life we have seen a whole host of realities. There were times that he was about as fine as you could hope to find. In fact, was he not described as a man after God's own heart? But there are other times when David was weak. There were times he succumbed to pressures around him. There were times that he gave in to the nature and reality of sin and he doubted. In fact, because of that, it leads me to make this comment. Psalm 27 was written by the same man we've been studying, David. What might be some things that can challenge you and me as we read Psalm 27 and we know about the nature of David's life? I hope this morning as we take a journey through the first four verses of Psalm 27, we will be able to identify in many ways with David and learn from Him not only the things that were so good, but learn from His mistakes so that we will not make the same ones. It is with that in mind, let's begin our journey by reading the first five verses of Psalm 27. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For in the time of trouble He shall hide me in His pavilion. In the secret of His tabernacle shall He hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. That's the reading of the first five verses of the 27th Psalm. You noticed many statements in it, and some of them point us in this direction. I've divided the particular lesson this morning in a way that all begins with the very last statement on that slide. The Lord, and we'll complete that sentence now in a host of ways, the first of which is this one. The Lord, according to verse number 1, is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. It ought to be possible for each and every one of us with confidence and with assurance to straightforwardly make that statement any hour of the day, any day of the week, any week of the year. The Lord is my light and my salvation. I would invite you to notice a few comments about that statement. First, the word light. That word in the original language, as you might expect, it means to shine or it means to provide or to give as a source of light. And so it was the case the psalmist on that occasion said, in terms of that which shines in one's life, for the psalmist, it was the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Although it will reoccur a number of times in the lesson this morning, might I take an opportunity to ask each and every one of us, including myself, this question. Who or what is it that shines in your life and in mine? When someone looks upon your life and mine, what do they first and foremost see? Occupation? An emphasis upon health? Or the Lord? David could with confidence say, The Lord is the light of my life. Many years ago, there was a song, in fact, that had as its title, You are the light of my life. You may remember it. I think it spent many weeks at number one. In that song, of course, it was speaking about one's cherished other, husband, wife, as the case may be. Here, David said, The Lord is the light of my life. And with confidence and with reassurance and with an overwhelming attitude of appreciation, he could make that statement. As you notice on that slide, that points us in these directions. David was in position, you see, to find himself seeking many things. We each can remember it well, can't we? David was a talented man. He could play a harp well. Why didn't David say, music is the light of my life? There are those today that feel that way. Not only a talented musician, David, of course, was an expert shepherd. Why couldn't he say, being a shepherd is the light of my life? Furthermore, David, of course, was a bit of a family man. He had several wives, a number of children. 
All of which might lead one to say, why couldn't David cast the spotlight upon that element in life? We are not by any means insulting or belittling the importance of family. But David did say, didn't he, the Lord is the light of my life. He went on to mention also in that same verse, the Lord is my salvation. You'll notice that that challenges us to observe this. David had the opportunity to choose and to select and to pursue many things. I mentioned a moment ago a number of possibilities. Family, sheep herding, the characteristic of music. But we each know very well David was talented also when it came to military matters. He was, after all, a man of blood. You'll notice in all of this, David did not mention any of them. I know that within the sound of my voice today, there is a wealth of talent embodied in the character of each and every person here. Everything from things related to homemaking, things related to various and sundry careers, matters related to being just a genuinely talented person in any number of ways. But yet for each and every one of us, none of them needs to stand above our association to the Lord. The Lord must be the light of my life. At least using myself to mention a matter or two, God has favored me with the ability when it comes to something like physics. That's not terribly helpful to a lot of people on earth, quite frankly. It is something that hopefully can benefit many as it sets them on a career, but physics mustn't be the light of my life. It is an opportunity for a career by which I can provide for my, fa my family and myself. But the Lord must always stand supreme above it. You can feel in your career and other matters in your life in the, exactly the same way. Just like David was no doubt tempted in many ways to pursue almost exclusively those man-made mundane matters, you and I are tempted to do the same. May we never succumb to the temptation. And may we, like David, appreciate the Lord as the light of my life. In Genesis 6.22, Noah, in fact, appreciated the thoroughness of that thought when you recall that he was commanded to construct an ark. And didn't that verse close the chapter by saying, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Noah too, you see, was expert in a number of things, not the least of which was carpentry as it related to shipbuilding and the characteristic of tending to that whole host of possessions he had. But nonetheless, he did what God said to do. Do you do that? Do I do that? You'll notice yet another example is Joshua 6, beginning in verse 1. This one is always a telling one when we reflect upon the position in which Joshua found himself. Go back in your mind's eye for just a moment and think with me like this. You recall that Joshua had been positioned as the leader of the children of Israel. Moses, the servant of God, was dead, Joshua 1, verse 2. And we notice on this occasion that as the conquest of the land of Palestine was beginning, the next place of battle was Jericho, a notable city, a wall city, a very protected city. And yet God had positioned in the character of Joshua to march around that city once a day for six days. And then on day seven, march around it a lot, seven full times. And then shout, 
What kind of a military strategy does that sound like to you and me? Does that sound as if that would be successful? Does that sound like an appropriate attack upon a privilege in walled city? Does it sound as if it has the slightest likelihood of being successful? And yet when we read that particular passage, we find that Joshua simply did what God said to do, and it was successful. The walls fell, the children of Israel conquered the city, and Jericho became theirs. I might submit to you and me today that there still are occasions in which what the Word of God says is what mankind thinks is foolish, what man thinks is unwise, what man thinks is almost funny, it's so ridiculous. We live in a modern age, don't you know? Why would you give your thought to a book written so long ago? You need to get with it, my friend. And yet you and I read the Lord is the light of my life and my salvation. May we always believe it. And may we always give our fullest assurance and appreciation to it. As you can see, for all those reasons, God continues to be the source of salvation today. Oh, we all know it well, that the world in fact lists one matter after another. Pursue this, follow that, seek with all the interest and integrity of your heart to do this. But yet the Bible still has words like these. Psalm 98 verse 2 says, God is the God of deliverance. He is able to deliver thee, and He is able to deliver me as well. In Jeremiah 10 verse 23, perhaps the most famous of all the verses in the book of Jeremiah, of all the 52 chapters, this one seems to stand out. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Younger people and older alike need to never forget that lesson. It's not within us to direct our own steps because the Lord is my light and my salvation. Perhaps finally in Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's only the first, though, of the lessons that I would encourage us to consider based on this psalm. Look with me at another one. Take it also from that opening verse in this chapter. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One of the matters I did not mention earlier, but no doubt one which rests almost supremely upon our hearts and minds, is taken from the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel. We learn so impressively that David seemed to have such an air of confidence as he fought Goliath. Part of that was based on the previous success he had known in defeating both a bear and a lion. I have a feeling that I would be very fearful to try and defeat either a bear or a lion. And yet David had done it. Not just one of them, but both of them. And yet he gave all the credit and glory to God who made that victory possible. What about you or me today? We often find other matters that serve as sources, strength, if you please, in life. I would ask you to notice that it says that the Lord was the strength of David's life. Many of us know many things in which we might have strength. I've listed at the bottom that David knew well that that physical strength that he knew was not the strength of his life. I'm reminded of some of the applications of that in the wording of 
some of the books of the New Testament. For example, we notice the very principle embodied in the life of Paul himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 10, on that occasion it was Paul who freely and frankly admitted that he had a thorn in the flesh. And in fact, it was such a miserable matter, he had prayed to the Lord not once, not twice, but three times for its removal. Three times that God might permit him to know that matter no longer. And yet, God had said, I will not remove it. But he did promise that I will give thee strength whereby thou may not only deal with it, but it might always serve to keep you humble, Paul. What about the need for humility? We saw it in the life of David, didn't we? Victorious over lion and bear, victorious over Goliath. He had escaped Saul many times. There might have been opportunity for David to feel a bit pompous and a bit arrogant and prideful. And yet this same one could hear say, The Lord is the strength of my life. Do you and I direct the glory and the credit to God the way that we should? Or do we take too much of it to ourselves? Do we act as if we are responsible for those blessings and those talents and those capabilities? Sometimes when it comes to the matter of strength in life, it's that text in 1 Timothy 4.8 that perhaps serves as a good example for so many others. For there we read how needful it is to ever rely upon godliness and to turn our attention to that as opposed to, let's say, other matters of physical endurance or physical strength. When you think about all those matters, perhaps that puts us in the following situation. Have you known an individual maybe even yourself at one time or another, when after enjoying good health for so long, then a period of sickness comes, a diagnosis that is exceedingly worrisome. On that occasion, sometimes you and I have known those who almost give up. They've known health for so long that that really was a critical matter of strength in their life and they're unable to face anything else without it. You and I should have enough strength because the Lord should be the strength of your life and mine, that we can face those other matters. It's not to say they'll be easy, but it is to say that we should appreciate there's someone there helping us. The Lord should be the strength of your life and mine. And even if those difficulties arise and come, we'll be equipped and prepared in faith to endure them. That leads directly, in fact, to that very next statement. David also noted in verses 5 and following that the Lord occupied another role in his life, not just light and salvation and not just strength. He also identified the Lord as both the protector and the defender of his life. David could speak firsthand to that point, couldn't he? Here was one again who had escaped Saul, Here was one who had found himself running all over the wilderness of of Canaan, trying simply to preserve his own life. Is it any wonder in Psalm 3, this very same person could say, I laid me down and slept because the Lord sustained me. Saul's men could have slipped up upon David at any moment, and yet in the comfort and tranquility and peacefulness of the night, he could nonetheless close his eyes in slumber and peacefulness, and sleep and simply say, The Lord sustained me. 
when you and I pillow our head in, at night? Are we thankful when morning comes that the Lord sustained us? And do we open our eyes to a new day, appreciative of the fact that it is the blessing of God? We ought to rise every day thankful for those blessings. In fact, those words are shouted to us in Lamentations 3. In verses 40 and 41, God's mercies are new every morning. The psalmist, or rather the Jeremiah, the writer of Lamentations, was rejoicing in that very matter, and ought not we be able to do the same? Sometimes though, that's one of the songs that we sing in our songbook. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. For every one of us, it would be a lengthy list to name God's blessings. Are you and I sometimes too willing to neglect them or overlook them or at least take them for granted? David didn't. Even something as simple as sleep, the appreciation of that reality that encumbers perhaps a few hours every day, David was thankful that God had protected and defended him and allowed him to enjoy that very matter. I hope that perhaps tonight you and I can be even more thankful than perhaps we've been in the past for the simple, humble blessing of a few hours of quiet sleep. You'll notice even beyond that, we have some of these statements that prompt us to think like this. Paul, it seems, felt the same. Namely, that the Lord was his defender and his protector. I would point you for a moment to the closing chapter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote and has been preserved for us by inspiration. The, second, the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy. In that chapter we find so many penetrating truths, such as, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. And as needful and as mighty as a verse like that is, notice that Paul turns things to a personal discussion a bit later in the chapter. Verses 16 and 17, Paul said, At my last defense, no man stood with me. As great a friend as Paul had been to so many others, yet when the time came for him to stand before the tribunal of the civil authorities, he was there alone. No man stood with me. But the next verse closes a thought by saying, But the Lord was with me. You see, although we might have thought Paul was alone, he says, The Lord stood by me. Do you realize the ever-present nature of the Lord with you? Do I realize Him with me? He did promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13, verses 6 and 7. He did promise on that occasion that to those who are His faithful children, we can ever appreciate He indeed is our defender and protector. The life that we live in the flesh thus ought to be a life dedicated and lived to the One who gave His life for us. The challenging features of all of that brings us to the closing matters on that slide. Housed in the language of Psalm 16, verse 6, it is one of the most cherished verses, at least to me personally, simply because of the volumes that it speaks. It's a very brief passage. It simply says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. That is David's poetic way of stating that many things had worked out well for him. God had showered so many blessings on him, the lines had fallen in pleasant places. So many features and issues of life are not merely happenstance. 
They're the orchestrated providence of God bringing to bear what ultimately comes to fruition. I know the lines have fallen to many of you in pleasant places as well, just as surely as they have to me. David knew that providential hand of God was at work. Do you and I appreciate the same? Or do we go too often through the day and through the week and through the month, never giving second thought to where the ultimate source of all those blessings happens to be? That's a sadness for my life and yours if that latter matter is the case. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That statement of James, the first chapter, verse 17, brings us to this closing thought on that slide. Proverbs 3, verses 3 through 5. The admonition that David's son Solomon gave. I'm sure that Solomon had seen in the life of his dad many noteworthy and positive things, and at least when he was so wise, this was his description. Trust to the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. That temptation was so very real for Solomon, and it's so very real for you and for me still today. You'll consider with me, I would hope, that there's another lesson to be found in this 27th Psalm. It is a matter to be housed, especially in the language of verse number 8. I would ask you to read that with me as we notice David saying, When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. God has been so amazingly good, and we've just noted a number of verses that highlight that reality. It is true, though, isn't it, that the goodness of God is to be met with response on our part. God has been good, in fact, to all of the human family. He gives us rain and fruitful seasons, Acts 14, 17. He shines His sun on the wicked as well as the good, Matthew 5, verse 45. And throughout the nature of the Old Testament, even those that were His enemies often were the recipients of physical things. That still is true. But to receive His eternal benefits... We can't just receive that with emptiness. We must seek Him. He must be sought after. In Hebrews 11 verse 6, one of the statements that closes that verse will pinpoint this thought, and it's on that I would ask us to build the next few ideas. We notice that faith, as it's set forth in that chapter, is penetrating and powerful. But this aspect of it is highlighted. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That adverb diligently highlights that seeking of Him must occupy a central role in your life and in mine. And with that in mind, here are some words. Questions, if you will. There are many in our world that are under the impression the serious impression, in fact, that God hands out salvation literally, just like He does physical blessings to each and every individual. The doctrine known as universalism, that everybody will be saved. Is that true? David here, among verses, many others that might be listed, say that God's blessings are poured on those that seek Him and do so with a pursuant desire and integrity of obedience. 
David said, verse 8, Thou saidest, Seek ye my face. God had determined and God had dictated to David, You seek my face. And David did it. He says today, Randy Bybee, seek my face. And you can put your name in the sentence as well. And if we are to be the eternal recipients of those blessings, we must, as David, do that which he said. Those in this world who believe that they can live any way they like, godly, righteous, or otherwise, and still receive God's blessings of eternal salvation, they are so sorely mistaken that it is heartbreaking. There would be no need for the Bible if that were true. There would have been no need for Christ to come if that were true. There would be no need for the church or any other matter of godliness if that were true. The Bible doesn't teach universal salvation. Rather, it teaches that Jesus Christ came. And He came because there was a world of sin. And God loved man enough to want Him to be saved. That included you and me. Seek ye my face, he said. Another question is this. There are some, and this points directly to me and to you, there are some who are under the impression that just as soon as they're scripturally baptized, they are saved from that point forward, and that ends the matter. No matter of faithfulness in particular is demanded, a magical moment for them took place at baptism, and nothing else is needful. That point of view is just as wrong as the first one. That baptism is our beginning point in faith. Our faith is now made real and it has been matted with obedience. And we thus are to devote our life from that time forward to the complete submission to the will of God. You'll notice David felt exactly the same way in principle. For he says, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Are you and I seeking His face day by day and moment by moment? Are we seeking His will at all times? All of that leads us to those final thoughts on that slide. Housed in this language points us to this. If we are to seek His face, that means the emphasis must be on the way that He has revealed Himself, and that's His Word. Do you and I devote time to studying it? Do we find ourselves opening it and looking into it? Do we honestly find ourselves able to say that we find treasure and enjoyment in opening the Word of God? Or when we leave today, will it find its way to the table at the house and it'll sit there until next Sunday where we'll dust it off and bring it back with us to services? Do we ever open the Word of God and read it? Do we do that as we should? Listen with me to a few of these verses. Again, from the same man who wrote Psalm 27. David, as he penned the 119th Psalm, verse 97, he said, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 140 of that same chapter, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verses 15 and 16 of that same chapter, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Verses 129 and 130 of that same chapter. The entrance of thy word giveth light and giveth understanding unto the simple. I know speaking for myself, I'm very simple. And how needful I am and how needful you are of the instruction and the direction 
that's provided through the nature of the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. Thus you and I should certainly at the very least be present when it comes to times of Bible study and opening the words, encouraging ourselves to know it and to appreciate the need to apply it. You'll notice that Wednesday, for instance, occurs at a midpoint time in the week. It is a bridge that connects Sunday to Sunday. That's a very special time in which we can come together with those of like precious faith and in that reality to understand that there is an emphasis on this book, the nature of the Word of God. I hope that you'll set aside time to be present with us on Wednesdays. I hope you'll be present with us on the Sunday morning Bible study periods too because those are times that our elders have appreciated to be useful and beneficial for all of us as it comes to bolstering and increasing our faith. Notice that David said, The Lord is the light and strength of my life. He is my salvation. He must be sought. That brings us to the closing point of our lesson this morning. It is that point that highlights this fifth and final observation. You noticed, I'm sure, that the lesson text was verse 4, and we haven't emphasized that verse yet. We shall do that as the closing point in the lesson. It is a very special verse. I would invite you to read it with me again. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Of all matters in life, and there are many, there must be one that stands supreme above all the others. There are obligations, being a husband or a wife, obligations to be a, husband, to be a mother or a father, obligations on the job, obligations in the community, obligations in regard to assistance in many ways. One thing, one thing must stand supreme above all of them. Listen to how David put it. One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Is that most important to you? Being right with God. Being a faithful member of the church. Does that stand as the zenith and the very pinnacle of all other matters? It should. It should for me. It should for you. Because in the final analysis, when this life's over, will any of the other stuff matter? To stand before Him in judgment and be able to then appreciate, one thing have I desired of the Lord. To dwell with His faithful children here is very special, but think about what it'll be like to be with the faithful of all the ages forevermore. One thing have I desired of the Lord. What's the one thing in your life today? Is it to dwell with the Lord, to inquire in His temple, to behold the beautiness of His presence? Or is there something else occupying that position in your life? It might be any number of things. As we've mentioned earlier, only you know yourself what is that thing in your life. If it's not the Lord today, if it is not the Lord, be honest with yourself. You need to make it right with Him today. You don't need to wait till tonight. You don't need to wait till Wednesday or next Sunday. There may not be a next Sunday. There may not even be a tonight. One thing have I desired of the Lord, 
and that will I seek after. If that one thing is not seeking after the Lord today, I would encourage you to make a change this very day. And I have placed in bold-faced type, and I have placed also in underlined fashion one thing on this conclusion page. It is a demanding thought of that there is no question, but you can do it, and so can I. It's commanded of us. If you need to respond today to the gospel call of invitation, it may be that as an alien sinner, one that has never named the sweet name of Jesus, that you can take care of that lacking in your life at this very minute. The song of encouragement has been selected. And if you are, have reached that point in life in which you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you are in position to repent of all those sins, if it is the case then that you've reached that point, why not come before us and make a confession? The sweetest words that could ever emanate from your lips and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you have become a member of the precious body of Christ and you've known what one thing meant, but at this moment you do not, you've allowed other things to become the main thing, why not put Jesus Christ back on the throne of your heart and life and let Him again be the one thing? If we could assist you in that way today by way of prayer for sins, known of a public nature, why not let us do that? And if we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways, would you not let it be known at this particular time while together we stand and while we sing?